Hey listeners, it's Erin and Kat. Happy February. Hope your New Year's resolutions are still going strong. We know ours aren't. We're really excited about this week's episode as we finally get to invite you all into our world. Kat and I conduct our own research in palliative care, and so in another first for the podcast, we will explore this field together with you. And who better to walk us through the relatively short history of palliative medicine and to give us a feel for its current clinical and research landscape than Dr. Camilla Zimmerman. She's the head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University Health Network and a senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center Research Institute. She's also a professor of medicine and the Rose Family Chair in Supportive Care at the University of Toronto. And on top of all these achievements, she has been an incredibly important mentor to both of us over the years. So of course, we jumped at the opportunity to co-host this episode. Keep listening to find out more about her personal journey towards becoming a leading palliative care physician and scientist, despite the lack of a formal organized program during her training. We really hope you find this conversation as enjoyable as we did. All right, let's get into it. When we were trying to brainstorm our guests for season two, both Kat and I looked at each other and we really wanted to interview you. Oh, great. And we changed it so that it's only one host per episode, but we okay. were like, can we co-host this one? <laughs> so great. I'll start off and then um, later on Kat will take over. Um, so a little bit nervous because I don't think, I know that you've been on my committee and you yeah. know, you've been a mentor we know and teacher. Well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had a sit down conversation, so I was a little bit nervous, but here we are. And I think there's actually, this is the first time that we've talked about palliative care on our podcast. We have a lot of other different topics that we've explored, but never this one. And so you're obviously an excellent guest for us. And so I think it's a relatively new and unfamiliar field for a lot of our listeners. So maybe just to start off, could you give a bit of an overview about what palliative care is and maybe a more comprehensive definition? Sure. So, I mean, it's it's maybe easiest to, to first start with what palliative care isn't. Okay. So palliative care isn't only end-of-life care, which yeah. is a common misconception. The other misconception is that palliative is only for older people, so it's really for people of all ages. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not only inpatient care, and it's not depressing, I think, is the <laughs> other thing. People tend to think of palliative care as depressing, whereas it's really it's filled of filled with hope and it's a it's a very gratifying career so what palliative care is really is the improvement of quality of life through a team approach a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary as we say team approach improving quality of life for patients and also for their families so that's and and for patients with serious illnesses Mm -hmm. and so that's that's basically it so someone doesn't have to be acutely dying or even dying in the next few months necessarily to receive palliative care. The other thing is palliative care is also a philosophy. So although we think of palliative care for people with serious illnesses or people with life-threatening illnesses, it's put in different ways, it really can broadly be applied to all of medicine um, because ultimately we are trying to cure in medicine and we're trying to prolong life but we're also trying to improve quality of life and and that improvement of quality of life in not only physical, but emotional, social, uh, spiritual, and functional realms really crosses all disciplines in medicine. So everyone has a little bit of palliative medicine, I think, uh, with probably some very rare exceptions, Um, maybe not pathology, for example, but pretty much every other field in, in medicine has uh, has some aspect of, of palliative care in it. Sorry. Adopt some of that philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So you said a little bit about some of the stigma and the misconceptions about palliative care. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what, what do patients and caregivers and family members often, you know, I think people about. are a lot of, uh, often, I mean, it's, it's sort of a conversation stopper at, at parties, <laughs> you know, you're, you're sort of mixing and middling and someone says, what do you do? I'm a palliative care physician. Oh, that must be so depressing. And then people get very quiet and sort of try to change the change subject. subject. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, but then sometimes, um, and especially as I'm getting older, people say, oh, wow, that's, that's wonderful. I had... Mm-hmm. A friend who was in palliative care had my mother was in palliative care and and people do have experiences with personal experiences with palliative care that are very gratifying so but in general people still associate palliative care with end-of-life care yeah. and and not just with end-of-life care sort of in a broad sense but with very end-of-life care. like this is this is it there's no hope left you have a terminal disease, and the other thing is that that they don't see it, which which is not true. They don't see it as overlapping with life prolonging care, which it does. I mean, improving quality of life when you think about it is just as important when you're trying to prolong life as right at the end of life, and that's sometimes the challenging part of it because mm-hmm. sometimes the treatments that we're giving in cancer, which is my field, for example, the treatments that we're giving to prolong life, like chemotherapy can also make quality of life worse. So what our job is in palliative care is to work collaboratively with specialists like oncologists to think of innovative ways to improve quality of life while um, the oncologists are are giving these treatments to to prolong life. Mm -hmm. Some oncology treatments as well are not aimed at prolonging life and are really aiming to improve quality of life. Radiation therapy, for example, for bone metastases that are, that are painful, is aimed at improving quality of life and reducing pain. So there's a lot of collaboration and overlap, and that's the exciting part of working in palliative mm-hmm. care, the interdisciplinary part of it, and not just with nurses and psychologists and social workers and physiotherapists, pharmacists, etc., and the palliative care team, but also people in sort of the broader medical field, other specialists um, with who we can brainstorm on how, how we can improve the quality of life for this patient. Mm-hmm. And you also published a qualitative study recently, I guess in the last mm-hmm. two years, about the perceptions of, of palliative yeah, care. Yeah, I did. Thanks. So that was part of a larger quantitative uh, randomized control trial, which we published in The Lancet, where we showed really that involving a palliative care team early Um, that is when the patient has a prognosis of six months to two years, improves quality of life. So it was a randomized controlled trial of 461 patients, where half the group was randomized to early palliative care, to involvement of our palliative care team in the clinic setting. So we have a freestanding palliative care clinic. Um, So half the the group was randomized directly there. And the other half was just received routine care. So about less than 10% of them ended up, they could receive palliative care on request, but after four months, only about uh, less than 10% actually received palliative care in that control group. So, and then we looked at after four months, the quality of life of these patients and quality of life and satisfaction with care of their caregivers. And we found that for patients, their quality of life and their symptom control and their satisfaction with care improved and also the satisfaction with care of their caregivers also approved. Um, and then the, the cool part of the study, to me at least, was that we were able to do qualitative interviews with both 
patients and caregivers in both the control group as well as the intervention group after the four-month trial and ask them, we asked them about their quality of life and other things, but we also asked them about their perception of palliative care. And what I was interested to know was, does the perception of palliative care change after the involvement of a palliative mm -hmm. care team, like we did in the out, early outpatient setting? And did it? And did it, <laughs> yes, it did. So, and, and the other thing is that, that we were able to interview people in the control group as well, obviously, mm -hmm. just to see you know, if there was any difference. So in, the, in both groups, at the beginning, there are perceptions of palliative care where, as I just stated right. earlier, so um, very negative, um, a, a lot of uh, um, nouns evoking uh, death and graveyards and things like that, uh, tombstones, <laughs> and sort of dark perception of, of palliative care being only end-of-life care, also having no hope left. That was an important theme, that, that hope was was gone, that there was nothing left to do. And and also they associated with the place, with an inpatient setting, so that, um, and with being debilitated and helpless, um, lack of autonomy, not being able to do things for yourself, being bedridden, being dependent on others. So that was the beginning perception for everybody. For the intervention group, yes, the perception did change over time. So they, they saw it as a very positive, their, their interaction with the palliative care team is very positive. They saw palliative care as having a, a much broader meaning and they saw it as hopeful actually and as improving their quality of life, quality of living <laughs> as, they, as they said. But despite all these positive things that they, that they mentioned, most of them still didn't like the name palliative. And found the name palliative stigmatizing in a way. And they had various sort of, when we asked them about solutions to that problem, uh, some of them felt that, you know, there's no way around it, you have to change the name. Uh, so there, there was some discussion about that, though no one had a really good idea of what to change the name to. They sort of said that's up to the medical field, that's not up to us, so they had really no idea. Everybody who thought that palliative care had a negative, negative stigma associated thought that there needed to be some rebranding. So whether or not they thought, some of them didn't think that the name should be changed. They thought that it was kind of pointless to change the name because the new name would then be associated unless there was some kind of rebranding or a, a, a changed understanding of what palliative care means, then the new name would also be you know, negatively Equally perceived. Um, so there does need to be some education. They were talking about you know, having an education campaign for people to understand better what palliative care means um, and a rebranding like you do with you know if, if McDonald's wanted to start selling <laughs> health food they'd have to rebrand <laughs> and the thing is the uh, the perception and they might want to change their name okay. <laughs> they, because you know the more the more ingrained it is that palliative care equals end of life and only end of life the more difficult it is to change that perception without changing the name you know having said that palliative care is end of life care I mean it's not like like it isn't um, it's just that it's more than that it's not only end of life care and I think that's what's changed uh, when palliative care first was invented so to speak in the in the 60s uh, it was mainly end-of-life uh, care for patients with, with cancer, with a focus on total pain, on physical, emotional, social, and spiritual pain, and improving that. But it has changed, uh, cancer care has changed too, and care of, of many formerly 
very quickly fatal illnesses has changed now so that these become more chronic illnesses. Um, and if you have an illness that kills you very quickly, then maybe it's appropriate to have palliative care involved You know, when you can, when someone's suddenly dying. But our medical system has been able to, our medical research has been able to prolong life, though not necessarily cure some of these diseases. So a lot of cancers now are chronic mm -hmm. and the course of the illness plays itself out over several years. So to involve palliative care throughout that course makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense in other diseases as well, so such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, dementia, for example, liver disease, congestive heart failure. So many of these diseases are chronic illnesses that can't be cured, but that can be palliated, so to speak. It's great that you touched on the other diseases as well, because I think we tend to focus a lot in terms of our discussion about palliative care in the, in the world of cancer, but of course it extends to the other chronic illnesses and also the fact that our population is aging, and yeah, so of course that's exactly. adding to the fact that palliative care is becoming bigger and bigger. Yeah, so. I think it's becoming more and more relevant. And yeah. mainstream. Yeah. 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 I was thinking maybe we could switch gears a little bit okay. and talk a bit more about your teaching and academic role because you've played a really instrumental role in expanding the palliative medicine training here at the University of Toronto by helping to develop Canada's first Royal College subspecialty program in palliative medicine at the University of Toronto. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So yeah, so that was that was the work of people in Canada other than me, actually. Deb Dudgeon, for example, Deborah Dudgeon was um, was instrumental in rolling that out across Canada and in pushing for a Royal College specialist palliative care program. So uh, when I trained, which was in the late late 90s, we did not have a palliative care specialty program of any sort. And uh, despite that, I wanted to go into palliative care. So I said, sort of had to make my own way and make my own program, so to speak, and try to figure out what would be relevant for me to study in order to end up doing later palliative care. And I, I said, as I'll, I'll tell you about later, <laughs> I had a rather circuitous route to sort of getting there. Picked up a lot of skills along the way. But in, I believe it was 2000 and six, and I might have the dates on this wrong, conjoint program was developed with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is our specialty college in Canada for physicians, and the College of Family Physicians, which is a, the um, Family Physician College. So that either after family medicine or after internal medicine, one could do a one-year program, which was shared amongst the two colleges. Um, so there was people training together from either family medicine or internal medicine for that one year in palliative care. What has changed in the past couple of years, or two years ago uh, approximately, again, we, we just have, we now have our second group of residents across Canada that, that are about to enter the program. So we're just finishing the first year of this Royal College program. So what has changed is that the Royal College allowed a two-year specialty training program. So this is after either training in general internal medicine, neurology, pediatrics, or anesthesia. When you're going into your last year of any of those one programs, you can, instead of doing that last year of general internal medicine, do two more years of palliative medicine, just as you would do a specialty training in cardiology, for example, or in dermatology or in pulmonology or whatever. Instead, you do it in palliative medicine. 
So it would be all in all, in most instances, uh, three years of, of general internal medicine and then two years of palliative medicine. So it's very exciting that there will now be palliative specialists who will be trained across Canada and hopefully do research in palliative care like I'm doing and be the next generation of palliative care specialists. The UK has had a, a specialty training program in palliative medicine since the 1980s. The US for about 10 years now, so it's I think high time that we did that as well. I'm very lucky to be here today with Dr. Mitali Vatsraj and she is one of the two first residents of the new Royal College um, subspecialty training program in palliative medicine. So do you want to just say hi and give us a little shout out? Yeah, hi. I'm excited to be here and to be talking about it. I think it's a really exciting time in palliative care with things changing, and I think this new program is one of the big steps Mm -hmm. we've taken towards things changing and what we're known for becoming a bit better. Certainly. We just heard from Dr. Zimmerman. She talks a little bit about her circuitous journey to getting to palliative care in Canada in the absence of sort of a, a formal organized training program, and like you said, it's a really exciting time. So before maybe talking a bit further about the program itself, maybe let's take a few steps backwards. And could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to pursue palliative care? And maybe if you had any personal stories or things along the way, was it during your earlier medical training or was it sort of later on um, during your internal medicine training? Sure. I think my passion for palliative care probably started without a label on it before my passion for medicine and that I had a lot of childhood experiences in the healthcare system as a patient, resulting in a lot of pain and surgeries, which helped me really appreciate the compassion side of medicine and the the, the psychosocial part of the care I was receiving that really made a difference more than the actual physical care that I was receiving. So I think that's what sort of pushed me into medicine and really appreciate that side. And then when I was in medical school, I think a big part of what led me to question what happens to patients after was taking care of patients with chronic diseases, particularly patients with heart failure caused by many different things, but heart failure nonetheless, who sort of had a a journey through the hospital system. And I I met with a certain patient that I took care of several times um, from the general internal medicine ward to outpatient clinics and to ICU level of care. And I think seeing their transition and their journey made me really appreciate what was lacking in their journey and then I was lucky enough to do an elective at Sunnybrook with the palliative care team there in my fourth year of medical school and I think that's really what consolidated what was missing for me and I was like well this is the part of medicine that I'm passionate about and I want to explore more then I matched to internal medicine here at U of T for my residency program and through there I think again just highlighted these chronic diseases that didn't get the care that they needed and I made it a point to always seek out either palliative care consultation or explore that part of medicine and that part of the patient's care which sort of helped me get to where I am now and on a personal level I think during my internal medicine training my grandfather passed away who had pretty severe dementia and was at his end stages and you know although something we know that at its end stages becomes a pretty difficult disease to deal with. I don't think it's generally in the public known as a palliative diagnosis, but for my family it very much was. He wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking, and I played the role of sort of advocating for him. And my parents were incredibly thankful at the end of it when he passed away in a palliative care unit, but just very comfortably. And they knew that he passed with peace and that that's what he would have wanted. So I think that just sort of was the final moment where I was like, no, this is what I want to do. 
Thank you for sharing that. No problem. Well, I guess, though, when you were in your internal medicine training, there wasn't still a formalized program at that time. It was just that you could complete a one-year certificate of yeah. added competency through family medicine. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So how how did you sort of navigate that and, and not pursue sort of family medicine instead of internal? I think I was just so stimulated by the complexity of internal medicine, and that wasn't one part of my passion I wanted to let go of so as much as family medicine was always an option for me I did want to sort of keep that other aspect um, of internal medicine that I appreciated so when I matched here initially I think it was just in the beginning of when the conversation was started about palliative care becoming a royal college program and that was something that they had talked to me about in my interview and that sort of pulled me in towards U of T a little bit more and then early on at in my internal medicine program, I had contacted James Downer and I had made it a point to sort of seek out a few key mentors that I could speak to that would help me navigate the system. And we had our fingers crossed that by the time <laughs> I finished internal medicine, that this would be something that was available to me. And luckily it was. Everything fell into place yes. and here you are. Yes. That's wonderful. It's a two-year program and you're currently in your First year. First year. So can you walk us through maybe a bit about the structure of the program and the different blocks that are involved? Um, And you're currently in the academic research or scholarly activity block, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, So the way the program is organized is very much into two distinct years, sort of. So the first year's focus is on the core palliative competencies. So we do a lot of the core palliative rotations and actually mimics quite similarly the one-year program through family medicine. So we do outpatient palliative care clinics, inpatient consultation services. Uh, We work on palliative care units and on in a hospice. And we do outpatient home visiting programs. And there's a a block of psychosocial oncology as well to sort of explore that aspect of it. And we do pediatric palliative care. I think that's the last rotation Mm -hmm. that I'm missing in that list. And then aside from that, we have some sort of dedicated time for research and scholarly work, which is one of the aspects of the program over the two years to have pick a project and to sort of see it through completion by the end of the two years. And then our second year focuses a bit more on sort of the non, non-malignant non aspect of palliative care and the chronic diseases and the way they've developed the program and not having gone through it, so I don't know how it'll, it'll exactly play out, but is that we work with specialists of chronic illnesses, so end-stage renal diseases, heart failure clinics, multiple sclerosis, ALS, and we work directly with specialists for those diseases to learn the management of diseases at their late stages, so sort of when they're getting into the realm of requiring our services as well and then including the medical management sort of understanding a bit more the psychosocial aspects that go with it and see where our role could be to fit in and help out. I see so you'll figure it out as you go on? Exactly yeah (laughs) that's the plan. So would you be able to share with us maybe what research topic or what project you're currently working on? Yeah so Right now, uh, the project that I'm doing for my two-year program as my main scholarly project is with Dr. Ella Walmer at Princess uh, Margaret Hospital. And the reason I'm working with him is because he has a strong research focus on sort of the cultural implications of people's background on the palliative care that they receive or have access to. And I was sort of triggered by the palliative care conversations I had amongst my family with the experience I spoke Mm -hmm. about with my grandfather that made me think that there's definitely sort of a big gap in care in terms of ethnic and religious backgrounds. So I'm studying sort of patient experiences of 
advanced care planning and end-of-life conversations with their palliative care provider, focusing a bit more about specific decision-making and how patients go through that process if they're of a different faith or cultural background. So we're looking at the Sikh population Mm -hmm. specifically, and we're going to do a semi-structured qualitative interview type study just to explore the different themes that come up. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. So I wish you the best of luck. Thank with you. That. We actually had a very interesting conversation. Pat and I had actually attended the GPEC symposium mm-hmm. a few weeks back, um, and it was about palliative care and end of life, or advanced care planning, sorry, for the Muslim population. Right. Um, so it was really interesting just to hear the different perspectives on it, and and there's definitely a lot to think about. Yeah, I think we've become really good at sort of how to have these conversations and give care to sort of the population we know best, but maybe not the ones that we don't know as much about. So I think exploring those is really important and helpful. Yeah, and paying a bit more attention to the little nuances between religious backgrounds and different faiths and things like that. Exactly, like I think a lot of the South Asian cultures don't have this strong focus on autonomy and individual decision-making, and a lot of their decisions are family-based, and so to understand that a little bit more and maybe approach those conversations differently, I think, can make a difference. So speaking of research, is this something that you'd like to hopefully continue in the future alongside your clinical work, or do you think that you'll probably focus primarily on clinical I'll tell you that my passion is definitely in the clinical work. And mm-hmm. so I see myself doing a majority of clinical work because I'm happiest when I'm sitting with a patient or a mm-hmm. family having these conversations and helping them through their journey. But I think there's parts of me that that wants to continue to explore what my passions are. So I think religion and culture being one of them. So I think I'd like to incorporate research into my career as long as it's something I'm very passionate about. And I can I can see myself also sort of working a little bit more towards quality improvement in terms of the research that I pursue, which would be a bit more clinically sort of in real time. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we need a lot more of as the field continues to grow. Right. Um, and we have more and more specialists right. like you yeah. in our country, so that's great. Do you know which population you're going to be working with? I know you've talked about in second year, you explore many sort of different diseases, and primarily now it's focused on oncology. So do you know where you're going to be in the future? I have no idea. (laughs) I think I definitely would want a mix of everything. I had an interesting experience through my internal medicine training during a respirology rotation that I was doing, working with the cystic fibrosis population Mm -hmm. and sort of transitioning a patient who had unfortunately failed lung transplants and just was not doing well into sort of her end of life care and that no one really knew how to approach it because they had built such a relationship with their CF specialist and there wasn't sort of a spot that you could plug someone like that into Mm -hmm. a palliative clinic. So I think I definitely want to be a palliative physician that can tap into all of those skills that I've developed over the years with the non-malignant diseases and to be a resource for specialists like that, but I haven't figured out how yet. <laughs> so you'll keep us posted. I in will, the yes, definitely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sitting with me today. Thank you for having me. Now back to the main episode. Now you you did just mention, and I want to come back to that circuitous journey um, of how you got into palliative care. Can you take us back in time and tell us about really when or how you decided to pursue palliative medicine in the first place? Yes, so to young me in (laughs) in, uh, medical school. So I trained at McGill, and Balfour Mount is really the father, so to speak, of of palliative care, and a really Mm -hmm. inspiring individual um, who has had several cancers himself, actually, Mm -hmm. now, in the meantime. But uh, when I was in my first or second or something year of medical school, he gave a really inspiring 
lecture, which was actually our only contact with palliative care, our only palliative care education really throughout medical school was this one, one or two lectures, but the first one really caught my mind and my attention, where he introduced the concept of, of palliative care and its relevance for all of us and this stigma that we had about dying in general as a society. And it really, it really spoke to me at the time. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. But I really wasn't sure how to approach that because as I went on and uh, I, I did volunteer. So he opened the palliative care one of the first palliative care units in Canada at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, and I volunteered there throughout medical school, and that was a really neat experience for me, and a few of us did, actually. So we'd come in, it would be in the evenings, because, of course, we were in class during the day. We're supposed to be in class during the day. (laughs) (laughs) So we'd come in in the evenings, and the nurses would have prepared a tape, and those days we still had tapes, of of tape recording of them telling us about the patients and which patients would be suitable to see. And we'd listen to that uh, tape, and then we'd go to see those uh, those patients who who perhaps would would enjoy a visit. So, and we had some great conversations with people. And people. you would just chat to patients? We would was just chat, basically. That or? was nothing. That was oh. our job to keep people company. Okay. Some people who maybe had family that was living a bit further away mm. or who didn't have family coming in every day. So we would just, and we would do small things like, you know, get them a glass of water or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. But but <clears throat> it was it was no, no hands-on care. So I did that throughout medical school. And then when I finished medical school, I, I or was finishing medical school, I had to start thinking about, well, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to get into palliative care? Because there was no mm-hmm. residency program of any sort at all. And I thought about psychiatry, and, and then I actually arranged all my electives in medical school in the last year to do only psychiatry. <laughs> um, and then just as I was finishing, I thought, no, I don't really want to do psychiatry because I wasn't ready to not have any physical, not provide any physical mm-hmm. care as well. And I wanted to provide that sort of whole person care rather than only psychological care, which is, of course, very important, but I wasn't ready to hang up the stethoscope quite yet. <laughs> uh, so I thought, well, what if I do family medicine and, and then I do psychiatry after family medicine? So I thought that would be the the best thing to do to have sort of two specialties so I enrolled in family medicine and then I found out it's too late I guess I was sort of out of it that you can't actually do that do two training programs mm-hmm. like that so I'd sort of kept all this to myself because as well palliative care and death and dying and everything you have to remember still was kind of stigmatized back then and mm-hmm. there wasn't really any great mentorship program for me to to try to forge forward and figure out my own way so so I didn't actually tell anyone I was interested in palliative care I uh so I then switched out of uh family medicine into internal medicine and finished my training in internal medicine I didn't uh, it ended up all my family medicine time ended up counting towards and I only did a few months I think four months Mm -hmm. so all of that ended up counting towards internal medicine so I didn't lose any time did all my internal medicine training and then I I thought about doing medical oncology versus doing geriatrics and eventually I thought well I'll just stay in general internal medicine because I again I wasn't interested in being a medical oncologist necessarily, mm-hmm. I was, uh, or really at all, I was interested in providing palliative care, mainly for cancer mm-hmm. patients, which is what I now do. Yeah. So I finished, to make sort of a long story short, I finished my general internal medicine training. Then I decided I wanted to be an academic. So I did a mm-hmm. master's first in public health in the social mm-hmm. science and health 
stream, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure exists anymore, but it was fantastic training for me. I was very interested in qualitative methods at the time, and, and I had in my mind that I wanted to be a qualitative researcher in palliative care. So I did that, completed the um, public health sciences master in that uh, social, social science and health stream. And then I decided I wanted to also do quantitative work. So I did a PhD with Ian Tannock as mm -hmm. supervisor through uh, IMS mm -hmm. um, in clinical trials, mm -hmm. so entirely unqualitative. But with that trial that mm -hmm. I just mentioned, I was able to actually combine both a phase three clinical trial with also a qualitative approach. So we did actually several, several qualitative studies following from that study. Mm -hmm. So now I work in, I'd say, mixed methods, you can say, or multi-methods anyway. So mm -hmm. my focus is on both randomized controlled trials, so mainly phase three randomized controlled trials, but also surveys. So I've done some national um, surveys as well on attitudes towards uh, palliative care and uh, serving oncologists about their attitudes and referral patterns to palliative care, serving palliative care physicians on their attitudes towards this new concept of early palliative care. And now we're working on a, a survey of the public following from that qualitative study mm -hmm. on what their perceptions are of palliative care. Uh, and then I uh, often, as I said, combine that with, with qualitative yeah. work as well to understand a bit more deeply what people are thinking who are enrolled in the trials that I'm doing. So it sounds like throughout your clinical training, you really were a pioneer in this area. It didn't really sound like you had very I much guidance. I guess so. I felt a little bit yeah. like mm -hmm. I was lost rather than <laughs> that I was pioneering so much. There was a lot of sort of winding around and going around in circles is what I was mm -hmm. feeling. But it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Yeah. Um, and life generally is like that, mm -hmm. uh, that you look back and you think, oh, well, that actually kind of makes sense. And it does all fall together. And I have, you know, now a pretty good training, actually actually, yeah. overall, <laughs> in terms of what I wanted to yeah. do. But at the time, it was like, gosh, you know, where on earth am I going? What am I doing? <laughs> you know? Um, I'm sure so uh, everyone it, can relate to that a little yeah, bit. <laughs> yeah, probably anyone in academia. Yeah. It's it's good to have those those moments where you're banging your head against the wall because mm -hmm. ultimately you come out at the end and you think, you know, gosh, that was, that sh it was actually worth it to think so much about what I wanted to do rather mm -hmm. than to just settle and do something else mm -hmm. so yeah do you find your graduate experience was similar when you were uh, doing your phase three trial where it doesn't really sound like clinically you had any mentors or a lot of guidance was oh yeah I did similar no so by that time academia? I I was I was that was doing really well so yeah my head banging was much earlier okay. <laughs> so no by the time I was doing the phase three trial I was very fortunate to get funded by the Canadian Cancer Society for the trial so I actually had my own funding and I actually approached Dr. Tannock to supervise me mm -hmm. and he was quite late in his career and was actually thinking of retiring soon so he said <laughs> well you're gonna be one of my last students but sure I'll take you on so I learned a lot from him and he's really both an excellent clinician and also a, a meticulous researcher so I learned a lot from his mentorship about research I learned a lot from Gary Roden who you both know very well yes we do um, <laughs> about both program development and again about research and it was he who encouraged me to you know apply for grants and work on the large scale rather than on the small scale um, mm -hmm. in terms of my research so they were both uh, very important mentors mm -hmm. for me and I, I didn't feel at all that I was alone in my my journey later on yeah uh, it was it was more earlier. 
And especially because I, I, and it was probably my own fault as well in that I, I felt unsure of myself. I really wasn't, wasn't sure whether palliative care was something you could do academically. There weren't that many people who were doing it. Uh, Eduardo Barrera would be one of the exceptions who's also a, really a pioneer in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned a lot from reading his papers and looking at his research mm-hmm. as well. So I've been lucky, I would say, um, in terms of in terms of mentorship and palliative care, more early on that it, that it was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely sounds like the field yeah. has progressed a lot, even within it really the has. time it's, that you were it's training. It's progressed right? in, in leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do yeah. You, do you and find I think that this, this generation is very lucky in that they mm-hmm. do have mentors, and that palliative yeah. care is now seen as as really important fields. Whereas when I was training, everyone was like, "Palliative care? What are you talking <laughs> about? You want to do that?" So it was, uh, yeah, it was it was not seen as a serious uh, career, mm-hmm. really, when I was when I was training. Do you find that your experience with research has influenced um, your clinical practice in any way? Yeah, I'd say yeah, I'd say both both ways. So mm-hmm. my clinical work inspires my research. It's always good to do things in research that are clinically relevant mm-hmm, and uh, and important. And vice versa as well. My, especially my qualitative work, I would mm-hmm. say, when you read qualitative interviews and about what people think of palliative care, of the care that they receive in oncology as well as in palliative care, then you get ideas for how you can do better on how that care can be improved. So mm-hmm. I'd say goes in both directions yeah that's the fun of being a clinical researcher it's funny that you are so involved in palliative care as well as qualitative research because qualitative research also tends to be underappreciated I think in in the general field of science and academia underappreciated fields yeah Yeah. (laughs) you're always rooting for the underdog (laughs) yeah yeah and that that I find is really important as well and it's also getting uh, increasing acclaim though it is still Mm -hmm. very difficult to publish qualitative research in higher impact journals, I'll say. There's also a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bad research in general, but I'd say there's especially a lot of bad qualitative research. So it it doesn't uh, get necessarily a good name for Mm -hmm. itself. There's something about quantitative research that makes it rigorous and that, you know, if you get statistically significant findings, um, and the tendency is for bad research to be statistically non-significant and then it doesn't tend to get published. The other way around also happens but it's less common so there is a bit of self-weeding out of, of quantitative research in terms of what's published. In qualitative mm-hmm. research it, it all gets in <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there's there's less I'd say natural rigor that comes with the, the field and you have to make it rigorous mm-hmm. and make sure that you're you're doing things systematically. Yeah. You have a theory behind what you're what you're doing in terms of methodology. So mm-hmm. yeah, it gets a bad rap, but it's it's such a a hugely important form of research that you really can't you can't get at opinions in the same way and and your outcomes in a way are already structured and determined before you start in quantitative research there's not as much exploration that can happen as Mm -hmm. as can in qualitative research you can get some Mm -hmm. really unexpected interesting findings in qualitative research that end up being really important so we've touched on this already, but as you said, the, this field of palliative medicine has been progressing in leaps and bounds, um, and it seems to be gaining more and more value and recognition um, mm-hmm. as the years go by. So we wanted to ask, where do you see this field going, both maybe from a clinical perspective as well as a research lens? 
Well, I, I'm hoping that palliative care will become just part, a natural part of clinical care, which it really should be, and increasingly it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole push for involving palliative care early. If you involve palliative care only at the end of life, there's a whole stretch of time where uh, palliative care isn't involved or where a palliative care approach isn't employed, where there's a lot more suffering, not just physical suffering in terms of symptoms, but also psychosocial suffering that's and spiritual suffering that's happening that doesn't need to happen. Mm-hmm. So, and people think of planning for the end of life as, as something negative and something they don't want to think about. But ultimately, when you do plan um, and when you do live your life with the knowledge that this is going to end sometime and gosh, maybe I should do something with this time in the interim <laughs> and also plan for where I want to be at the end of life, then, mm-hmm. then it, it makes the, the, the stretch of time much more comfortable for everybody, really. And, 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 and you end up dying in a place that you would like to die in. You end up having conversations with your family that mm-hmm. you might not otherwise have. So there's a lot of missed time and missed opportunity that people um, could have that they aren't having because they are not receiving palliative care. Mm-hmm. So so that's what I'm hoping will happen, and I think it will. I think our sort of squeamishness about palliative care and end-of-life care is changing. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned earlier, our whole society is getting older. Um, older people tend to be a bit wiser. Um, <laughs> and the, the uh, baby boomer generation is also very sort of self-assured and likes taking matters into their own hands. So I, I'm hoping, and, and I do think, that, mm-hmm. that they will embrace palliative care and this new version of, of palliative care, or quasi-new version of palliative care, where we're involved earlier and more proactively, that that will be embraced going forward. Research-wise, I, I think we need to conduct more research actually proving that this um, method of care is efficacious. And I've been involved in research that, that does that. I think this um, kind of early palliative care research needs to be done as well in other diseases. My focus is on cancer, but there's a whole range of non-cancer diseases that I mentioned affecting really all organ systems, heart, lungs, Mm -hmm. liver, um, (laughs) and um, just diseases that come with aging, such as Alzheimer's, that need some palliative care involvement and that also need some research to back up this kind of early palliative Mm -hmm. care involvement. So I think that that's the way forward, at least for my area of research. We need a lot more clinical trials in palliative care, and that's another area that I'm very interested in, in terms of physical uh, symptom control, but also, again, in terms of uh, complex interventions to improve uh, psychological well-being. Mm. So there's... I mean, really, in palliative care, the, the field is so open yeah. that you can do research in anything as long as it's done really well, and uh, you'll get into a great journal. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're currently conducting um, a phase two feasibility trial, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about sure. what that is and how it ties into hopefully changing the clinical practice of yeah, palliative care. Yeah, so what, um, the first trial, as I mentioned, was one where we randomized patients with a longer predicted survival than usual in palliative care. So usually palliative care is for people in the last six weeks or so of life, traditionally. So these were people who had a prognosis of between six months and two years, and they were randomized either to receive palliative care immediately or not at all, uh, unless the oncologist asks, so, so by request. 
So this new trial, and we showed that that early involvement improves quality of life if you do it right away. So then the question comes, can we, could you, can we really afford to, for every single patient, no matter what, involve a, pale, a specialized palliative care team right away? And the question is, right now, no, we can't um, because we just don't have the resources. So, so what do we do? We've, we've shown that this improves quality of life, but we can't afford to do it. So one, one way that we could involve palliative care is for only those patients who have severe symptoms. That would make some degree of sense. So we do screening, symptom screening, for all patients walking through the door at our cancer center and indeed at all the 14 cancer centers across Ontario. Um, that's mandated. So what we thought is we'll use those screens to triage uh, uh, patients so that they receive triage palliative care if their symptom is and it's a, a variety of symptoms, nine different symptoms that are screened, pain, shortness of breath, and also um, nausea, psychological symptoms like depression and anxiety. So if those symptoms are greater than four out of 10, mm -hmm. then they receive a call from a nurse mm -hmm. offering them a visit for the to the palliative care clinic and also explaining to them, so doing some telephone education about what palliative care actually is mm -hmm. so that they're more likely to agree to come. So that's one arm of the trial, so mm -hmm. triaged palliative care. And there's two other arms. One is just referral, referral on request, mm -hmm. like our previous control arm, and immediate referral. Mm -hmm. So the idea really is to see whether immediate referral and triage referral are the same, mm -hmm. but whether triage referral in the end saves money. So mm -hmm. we're doing an economic analysis okay. as well. That's great. Well, best of luck with that. I'm Thank sure you. we'll hear about the results. Yeah, we're just starting with that. We've done a pilot years. so yeah. far just on the intervention yeah. to see if it flows well, and it mm -hmm. seems to, and if people actually come to the palliative care clinic, importantly, mm -hmm. after they're triaged to it, um, and they do. That's great. So the next step then will be this uh, larger trial, which we'll start mm -hmm. shortly. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, and so just to wrap up, um, I want to come back to something that you mentioned at the very beginning of our discussion. And you talked about how one of the misconceptions around palliative care is that it's such a depressing area to work in. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult and just there's so much hopelessness. Um, and that's something that, mm -hmm. as you found, patients also think about mm -hmm. uh, when they hear palliative medicine. So for you personally, it really doesn't sound like you, you find this field depressing at all. So I was wondering, day to day, um, what, what inspired you or what where do you see hope um, when you're working with this population well I think there is obviously sadness yeah. so you know we're we are dealing every day with with people with very serious illnesses and with their their mm -hmm. families and there is a lot of tragedy involved in that especially with people who are diagnosed at a young age who have mm -hmm. children for example yeah. it's just very meaningful work mm -hmm. so there's never a time where I think well this isn't really important it's always really important so mm -hmm. that I find really inspiring yeah. um, also the way people deal with adversity is inspiring so mm -hmm. people tend to be very resilient resilient and surprisingly resilient in terms of of what they're able to endure and mm. then there's those who aren't as resilient and and they're it's very gratifying to be able to help those people yeah. so and to help their families mm -hmm. so working with families <laughs> is something that I really enjoy working with patients also working with trainees so yeah. we have uh, fellows for example who are, are training both in research and palliative care and also in clinical care and watching 
them grow and develop mm-hmm. is I find really inspiring. Yeah. And it's in the end, it makes it makes it more fun if you're working in a team of. Um, and we're again very lucky to have a team of of, of uh, physicians yeah. and also nurses and uh, and social workers, etc. Mm-hmm. Who working in that team and having different ideas to bounce off each other and also to support each other because in the end it, it can be difficult work mm-hmm. but to be able to re, uh, debrief after mm-hmm. a more difficult death for example mm-hmm. um, and learn from each other is, is also very yeah. expi- inspiring so it's uh, a very meaningful mm-hmm. uh, field to work in I would yeah. say. Absolutely and I think Aaron and I can probably both echo our appreciation for having that diverse team and that mm. support given that we both do research with the same population of cancer yeah. patients that it it is so much more meaningful than I ever imagined when I started. So yeah. I think maybe we'll wrap up our discussion there. Thank you so Great. much for sharing with us oh, and very helping educate a about pleasure. palliative care and what it is and what it isn't more importantly. <laughs> Thank you very much You're and very until next time, keep it raw. Thanks <laughs> <All right. laughs> Kat and Aaron. As promised, here's a couple scenes from episode 33 with sleep scientist Dr. Richard Horner. We unpack what an anesthetist means when they say, I'm going to put you to sleep. The, the idea that the, these general anesthetics, in large part, hijack the systems that promote natural sleep is interesting. But they do something else. Because there's more than just the unconsciousness you want. You want the lack of mobility and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And we also speak in great detail about his motivations for writing his book, the universal pastime, sleep and rest explained. I, I took it on as because I just felt there was so much that is known about sleep, and I was a bit tired of hearing there was so much we didn't know because I just felt that that was perpetuating a myth that wasn't true. Be sure to take in the full episode on February 21st. Thank you. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. I met with a certain patient that I took care of several times, um, from the general internal medicine ward to outpatient clinics and to ICU level of care. And I think seeing their transition and their journey made me really appreciate what was lacking 